I initially discovered you when I, I used to have a, I had quite a big interest in like fitness, general health, and kind of biohacking, I guess you'd call it in the beginning. And my usual resources were the typical places that you would go to online. And then I would start to dive into like PubMed and go into studies. And really, I didn't have the uh, kind of educational background or knowledge really to be able to put two and two together with these. So then I would seek out people at a higher level than me that had a more comprehensive understanding as to the specifics of some of the supplements, uh, some of the way you know, different chemicals work within our body. Um, and then you're one of the people that I found in the beginning that um, immediately, as I started watching your content, I was like, yes, this is, this is amazing. And so then I just followed, followed along with your journey. So in a, in a nutshell, can you tell, for anyone that doesn't know who you are, can you explain what you do and who you are? Yeah, man. Well, uh, yeah, I really appreciate that, that sort of feedback because um, one of my missions at the very beginning of Ergogenic Health was to bring forward new, novel and cutting edge health information to the masses. And I always felt like I had, I, I felt like my X factor was the ability to um, pinpoint a new and exciting research or areas that I know people will find extremely fascinating whether that be from a sports performance realm, because I've got a, you know, I used to play soccer for a number of years. Um, that's actually where my journey started out was um, trying to biohack and optimize my own soccer performance and experimenting with different supplements. And I also like I was working in my dad's pharmacy at the time, so I was sort of like that. That was whilst I was studying naturopathy, so I was sort of like in between, you know, Western medicine versus natural therapies and supplementation and then from there i sort of got involved in a nootropic startup so like i helped to um, formulate products from a very young age um, and i just became really obsessed with like different ingredients different dosages pharmacokinetics pharmacodynamics and i guess like i'm i'm the mechanism of action guy like i love to learn about how things work and the pathways and how we can like tweak and modify different pathways and what would you say for your own kind of endeavors with it? What is the thing that excites you most? Is, do you have a particular goal as in you just want to optimize yourself to be performing at your best or longevity? Or, I mean, can those things go hand in hand? Well, for me, I mean, my ultimate goal and objective is to acquire so much information and knowledge that I can eventually cast it and broadcast it to to the masses and really just... Um, and I've got the opportunity, I've, I've been doing that currently, like I've had the opportunity to like, you know, gain further reach on different platforms like Ben Greenfield's podcast, Ben Pekulski's, um, Mark Bell's podcast. And just from there, my really one of my main missions is to, I really want to discover something new and novel. And I'm thinking that uh, that particular thing will be an ingredient. I'd like to bring my own like supplement ingredient to market, whether that be, you know, derived from a herb, it could be an alkaloid, it could be the next yohimbine, the next like caffeine. I'm just always on the hunt. I love just looking outside the box and seeing what else is out there because there really is just like this whole world of untapped potential. Um, and there's just so much within our reach that we just we haven't even scraped the surface. And that's what I really enjoy. Yeah, it's so exciting to think of all the like possibilities that there are for you to be able to kind of delve into. And so for like Kahunas in general is uh, we're focused on kind of 
helping coaches to deliver the best possible service to their clients. And I know that at the moment, especially, I don't know if it's just been a trend of recent, but there seems to be a really big focus on sleep. And there's a lot of different supplements out there that have various different proprietary blends or specific ingredients in them. And I wanted to kind of go into the role of like neurotransmitters, specifically serotonin, dopamine, how they affect our sleep, and then ways that we could perhaps optimize those in order to help people get the best possible night's sleep for their recovery. Yeah, so it's a really, really important point. Um, various neurotransmitters can have either a positive or negative effect on sleep quality. Um, now, it's fair to say that serotonin, which most people listening in probably associate that neurotransmitter with um, promoting a good mood, which is debatable, question mark. Um, but serotonin is actually can actually get converted into melatonin. Um, so as far as optimizing neurotransmitters to promote um, sleep onset and to reduce fragmented sleep, what we want to be doing is is increasing the inhibitory neurotransmitters. So that's um, GABA being the predominant one. And then serotonin is more so a neuromodulator. And we want to be dampening the production of the excitatory neurotransmitters. So that's dampening the production of glutamate, which is an excitatory, and that will you know affect sleep in a negative way. And we want to be reducing dopamine because dopamine's arousal, awakening, and energy. And the same goes for norepinephrine and noradrenaline um, or, or adrenaline. So realistically, when we're looking at optimizing sleep quality, what we want to be doing is um, putting the handbrakes on cortisol, putting the handbrakes on like glutamate, adrenaline, histamine, orexin, and increasing like glycine transmission, GABA transmission. Um, that's usually the way in which we see a lot of these like sleep formulas work is by, you know, facilitating those pathways. Sure. And so with that in mind, would it kind of make sense that as you approach your last meal of the day, so three hours, two, three hours before you're going to go to bed to start to perhaps take some supplements at that point to kind of get your body to kind of relax a bit and get ready for the evening or is this or would it be better just to 20 minutes 30 minutes before you go to bed you have something well it's a really good question because um i was just looking at gaba like because gaba itself we now have the ability to supplement directly with gaba itself and gaba is a neurotransmitter we can't directly supplement with like let's say dopamine or serotonin that just doesn't work but but it does work for gaba so if you take GABA actually under the tongue. So if you get like the, the capsules or if you take the powder and you put it directly under the tongue, that has a very fast onset and that has a very pronounced, um, it promotes relaxation, a feeling of calmness, and it will also shut down like ruminating thoughts and overthinking. So something like that would be best utilized um, literally just before your, your, your head hits the pillow. So immediately okay. before bed. Okay. And with, so GABA specifically, there are some uh, kind of, I guess, uh, experimental supplements that people could take. So uh, I'm probably going to butcher the way people say it, but Phenobut or Phenoboot um, specifically, I think acts on the GABA pathway. Is there, I've actually tried GABA before and I'll take it 
in the evenings, normally with my evening meal, about two, three hours before going to bed, which could be the wrong thing to do after hearing what you just said. But I would find that it kind of starts to, I say like dumb me down. So it's like I start to feel more relaxed towards that kind of when I want to be going to bed. Yeah, yeah. So Gab, uh, so GABA itself, um, it would work. It works very differently to say, let's say, Fenibot, which you mentioned okay. before. Um, so Fenibot is that's also a calcium channel blocker. So that that remember that um, one of the reasons why a lot of these health coaches promote or like you know fitness influencers all talk about the benefits of magnesium is because magnesium is the body's natural calcium channel blocker. Like it naturally has the opposite effect of calcium in the body. Um, now, Fenibot is a calcium channel blocker, but it's also a GABA-B agonist. So the, okay. there's different types of GABA receptors. There's GABA-A, GABA-B. The ones that are GABA, the GABA-B receptors, they're the ones that are risky, very risky to um, agonize. And what I mean by that is they're the ones that are very um, – prone to downregulation. And when we get downregulation of that particular receptor on the day that you don't use the substance, so like the next day or the following days, there can be a rebound um, anxiety or a rebound excitatory response. And that's why if anybody is highly um, habit forming and also addictive, if you use it like consistently every night, it's more of the, it's, it's one of those compounds you want to use like, super sparingly for what i call a super sleep where right. you just like you know you want to do like a 12 hour sleep and just knock yourself out yeah it's interesting so just anecdotally from my own usage um it's pretty much how i've used it because i found that if i was taking it for more than say three days in a row i would have to increase the dose considerably to have a similar effect and then when i stopped taking it the next day day after or even if i continue to take it by like day four day five in the mid afternoons i would start to get extremely anxious i could almost feel like um you know if you're like beta receptors are like pumped up and adrenaline's flowing mm -hmm. like it, it'd be like that sort of feeling like jittery anxiety so i then have to go cold turkey and just come off it yeah and actually what you bring up there is like this the typical scenario of developing tolerance um which which also occurs with compounds like caffeine that's probably the one that most of your listeners can relate to is like having to titrate up the dosage of caffeine to elicit the same effect as day one. There is a class of um, medications and supplements that possess a really unique effect known as reverse tolerance, which means that um, the longer you use, like if you keep using the same dosage um, back to back to back, like let's say for seven days straight, on day seven, the potency of that dose is more effective than on day one. And that class of um, supplements and compounds, like that really interests me because then the user doesn't have to rely on increasing the dosage. Um, and I think there's actually some compounds found within ashwagandha, which I'm not, it, it is an anti-stress herb and it will, it will help with sleep. Um there are some constituents found within ashwagandha that actually possess reverse tolerance effects. And in fact, in some studies, I'm pretty sure it actually outperformed um, diazepam, like the, the you know, Valium, in terms of its um, ability to modulate the GABA-A receptors. That's pretty incredible. And do you think, 
Like, how does the process of that take place? Is it that the half-life of a supplement is extensive and so it's building up so that by the time you're on day seven, like within your blood, you'd have a higher level of that particular supplement? Or is it that there's like a cascade, like a downstream of things taking place that just sort of like perpetuate themselves into something bigger? Yeah, that's a it's a good good hypothesis. I think um that that's potentially the case. I think also there's like an epigenetic reprogramming of particular um it's the mRNA expression of um these receptors. They can actually be manipulated and changed and this it happens all the time with a range of different herbs. Like I know curcumin can from an epigenetic standpoint upregulate like glutathione production in the liver and that's why curcumin is notoriously good it's well known for supporting liver health is because it's upregulating the genetic expression of like nrf2 and things like that but um yeah the whole the whole that whole category of like reverse tolerance compounds um that really excites me another compound that's somewhat gabaergic that has a pretty potent effect is megadosing l-theanine have you ever tried l-theanine yeah the highest dose i've probably done is like 600 700 milligrams i think something like that oh, wow that's a that's a that's a modest a modest dose um the max that i went up to was uh 1200 milligrams wow um how, and that just felt that like feel? i was yeah I, I just felt like i was floating like i was just floating <laughs> in midair <laughs> um a, a nice feeling yeah I, I i think um it reminds me of like um, you know, moderate dosage of CBD oil with maybe a bit of um, like chamomile, for example. But I mean, I looked up the LD50, which is the lethal dose 50, which is like a safety threshold. Um, yeah. And L-theanine has a very high safety threshold. So um, for those listening in, don't think that I just randomly try supplements. <laughs> like I always do my research. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine you just would arbitrarily pick a random dosage and just take it. Um <laughs> So with uh, coming on to L-theanine, I think that's a good one to kind of segue onto. Is that the type of, so first of all, what does L-theanine do? And what would be the timing of that if like trying to get ready for sleep is your goal? Yeah, so L-theanine is really unique because it um, addresses, it has an anti-stress effect via multiple pathways. Um, the predominant one is the fact that L-theanine can actually block glutamate signaling and glutamate as many of you are aware the best way to think of glutamate is like just think of msg when you go to you know an asian restaurant sometimes they'll add msg it's like highly excitatory it, it gives you a sensory alertness and um like that it's a sensory dynamic that's really um addictive and like increases energy um acutely however the following day after msg or after a big glutamate um, dumping, you we get what's known as excitotoxicity or neurotoxicity, and that leads to a drop off in cognitive parameters or cognitive domains, and that's where L-theanine is so effective at counteracting any type of glutamate uh, toxicity that can occur, even following for some people if they have um, if they respond negatively to gluten. One of the reasons why people get brain fog from eating gluten is because it can mess up the GABA to glutamate ratio. And that's possibly why those individuals also seem to respond really well to taurine 
which I'm also a massive fan of, um, that can also block glutamate signaling. But in terms of L-theanine, if we go back to the other mechanisms of action, so these are the, I'll just, this is off the top of my head, just thinking back to the studies that I've read. Number one, it has anti-cortisol effect. It has an anti-adrenaline effect, blocking glutamate signaling, increasing alpha waves in the brain. So um, promoting that sense of calmness, almost like mimicking meditation. And it also has some modulatory effect on um, dopamine and serotonin. And uh, it also inhibits histamine. So it's a mast cell inhibitor. So, you know, reducing mast cell activation and histamine is another pathway that can really dramatically hinder sleep, affecting sleep in a very negative way. When histamine levels are high, histamine promotes wakefulness. So by blocking histamine, you know, we're going to be seeing a, a reduction in wakefulness. And this is actually one of the mechanisms by which um, modafinil, the smart drug or the um, <laughs> the psychostimulant that a, no- a number of people use, modafinil is a, a drug that can increase histamine and that does the opposite. It actually, you know, causes wakefulness. Wow. And I didn't know that about modafinil. I didn't know that was the one of the mechanisms of action from it. But with um, so with histamine specifically, is this where then was it kind of like a byproduct of creating antihistamines that they found out that this would actually make people drowsy and put them to sleep? And if so, what is the kind of long term damage of using an antihistamine if, if I was going to use it for like years at a time to promote sleep? This is a fantastic question because um, there is a particular antihistamine drug that I actually really like, um, but it's not one that I'd ever encourage people to use long-term. And obviously, this is not medical advice, by the way. This is just um, hardcore biohacking. Um, (laughs) There's there's a drug known as ciproheptidine or ciproheptidine, which is um, one of the very first uh, anti-serotonin drugs and antihistamines developed on the market and it's the one that i actually can say we at least have a good predictability on like what it's going to do how it's going to work how long it's going to last these are the typical effects um and that is an antihistamine so it's blocking the histamine h1 to to h4 there's one two three four receptors i believe it's more of a potent uh, h2 antagonist but um one of the side effects associated with these antihistamines long-term is that a lot of them actually have anticholinergic effects. And the anticholinergic effect is what can increase their risk of developing memory issues um, or even their risk of developing potentially Alzheimer's disease because acetylcholine is incredibly important for um, memory formation, learning, focus, um, and so this is, you know, a potential side effect with using these potent antihistamine drugs long-term. And with and so with that particular uh, antihistamine you talk about, I believe, isn't that the one they prescribe if someone has like serotonin syndrome, they'll give them like high levels of that to, to like, because it's the only antihistamine that brings down serotonin. Is that right? That's exactly correct. Yeah. It's, um, it's an anti-serotonin medication that's used in hospitals in intravenous they actually use it, I'm pretty sure they use it intravenously to block serotonin syndrome, which is a 
it's a phenomenon that occurs and it <clears throat> it can also occur in a number of individuals <clears throat> sorry <clears throat> that have um that combine too many serotonergic drugs together and that can result in serotonin syndrome which is characterized by like fever shivers muscle tremors um bizarre bowel movements and things like that and so superheptidine is used as a frontline therapy to counteract that interesting and if you so if you're taking any antihistamine to go to sleep and let's say i'm gonna use my mom as an example because my mom takes them every single night and now she's at the point whereby that behavior is so conditioned that if, she, if I gave her a placebo pill and switched it out, she would still think that that's the thing making her go to sleep. Like she's that conditioned on this. So I wonder if, if someone is hell-bent on using this for long-term, could they supplement with acetylcholine or supplement with something that is going to perhaps offset any potential damage that that could do? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely true and possible. I mean, when I use superheptidine, I'm so aware that I know it's also blocking my like cholinergic transmission and neurotransmission. So what do I do? I mean, I'm not going to just be like, hmm, hmm. Am I just going to like push through it until the drug fades out or am, or am I actually going to be smart about it and load up on choline donors like alpha-GPC, acetyl-L-carnitine, or high-dose vitamin B1. And when I when you get that right and you correct that anti-cholinergic effect, you're like, hmm, I just like, <laughs> I've just biohacked this medication. I don't know. It's just <laughs> like, you're just, you know, you, you're, you're outsmarting the drug, you know? Yeah, that's impressive. And with, so I know we've kind of touched on um, serotonin a little bit and we won't go into too much of the weeds of it because I know I've watched a few of your videos on serotonin and I highly recommend for anyone that's watching this to go and check out Lucas's channel and look at the serotonin videos. Now I would say, would it be the wrong assumption to say that you're not a fan of SSRIs? I am not a fan of SSRIs. Okay. Uh, and so specific to sleep, what are the detrimental effects of SSRIs? Yeah, well, I mean, SSRIs are pretty notorious for actually disrupting REM sleep quality. Um, and interestingly, what I think is actually happening is many people aren't aware that serotonin is actually, it's oftentimes considered to be a neurotransmitter that um, has a, you know, a modulatory effect on mood. So keeping people feeling content, making people feel content and satisfied with how they're, you know, how they are and their, their perception of the world, um, having a dampening effect on the highs and the lows. As far as sleep quality <clears throat> goes, I mean, you're a good case scenario. I mean, you, you said that you noticed um, it affecting the quality of your sleep. Did it increase nighttime uh, awakenings? Like, did it cause fragmented sleep in your case or? Yeah. And it still does. Cause I still, I'm taking it to this day. Um, and I can get off the sleep super easy. So I've got, I think with the supplements I take and the stack I have in place for me to wind <clears> down and including other things like sleep hygiene and uh, stop eating like three to four hours before I go to bed, all those sorts of things. I can get off to sleep super easy. I'll then wake up probably within 90 minutes of falling asleep. I'll get back to sleep again. Then I'll wake at like four hours after going to sleep. And then I'm up like I average probably four or five hours sleep a night. Like I just can't at that point, I cannot go back to sleep no matter what, what I do. Wow. 
Yeah, actually, also part of that is um, I was just thinking about different pathways. The um, I believe it's the five HT four receptor, the serotonin type four receptor that has a um, an effect on cortisol release, and also the five HT two A receptor. And there there is a there's actually evidence suggesting that five HTP, which is uh, you know precursor to serotonin. In healthy humans, 5-HTP can actually increase salivary cortisol levels. And that that's interesting because you'd think, like, why would, how would serotonin increase cortisol? Well, it's because it's binding to that 5-HT4 serotonin receptor. And, and part of serotonin's effects is actually to work in unison with some of the other stress hormones like prolactin. Um, prolactin is not not a hormone that men want to have elevated, um, and serotonin can directly, you know, have have an increased prolactin. Um, so th- there's definitely some interesting pathways there when it comes to SSRIs and sleep. And is there any um, supplementation that you're aware of that somebody could take if somebody was on an SSRI? Anything that they could do that perhaps might help them in in I guess staying asleep because that being the main problem. Um, that's where I'd probably go about it through the GABA, like through um, optimizing the GABA pathway. So um, yeah, focusing in on compounds like uh, lemon balm extract, taurine, L-theanine, um, amoxipine, and potentially even uh, etoxaphene, which is another one. Like these are compounds that have a pretty potent GABAergic effect without this, the typical side effects of benzodiazepines. In fact, there's a new one that I'm going to be releasing a video on on my on my channel soon. It's um, called Grandaxin, which is a it's a medication that's used in the Ukraine, I believe, um, or Russia, one of those um, Eastern European countries, and it has a pretty pronounced effect on um, upregulating GABA production. And actually working to the same degree, to the same um, potency as some of the like benzodiazepines without the withdrawal or side effects. Interesting. Because that was going to be the next question is with the uh, drugs like diazepam probably being the most well-known one, they can or appear to appear to promote a good night's sleep if you have them. But what is actually going on there and what is the detrimental effect of long-term usage of something like that? Yeah, well, if we look at the actual pharmacokinetics and the actual mechanism of action, um, some of these compounds, are they really are chemical straitjackets. So what that means is that, like, for example, um, some of the potent benzodiazepines, they actually will, like, the way in which they promote sleep is they just cause a tranquilizing effect on the body. Um, and some of the ramifications associated with using these compounds longer term is that they can um, lead to this severe state of uh, GABA-A downregulation and a following withdrawal of some of these medications. I mean, there's number of, I think Jordan Peterson may have posted about getting off um, benzodiazepines or something, but it's probably one of the hardest classes of medications to um, come off. So like once you once you start on these medications, um, you know that can be really difficult 
to wean off due to their effect on um, GABA-A trans uh, activity and receptor count and also the sensitivity of those receptors become desensitized. <clears throat> so if, I mean, if someone was on, was taking those, um, is it, would it be best for them to kind of just wean themselves off whilst trying to implement strategies to help them sleep, like more, like ones that are going to be better for them <clears throat> long term? Yeah, I mean, in that case, um, the obviously the titrating the dosage down, like slowly weaning off is really important. Never you know, quitting cold turkey, but then slowly trying to implement some of these other strategies that we talk about, even agmatine, which is a an arginine metabolite. Um, that one there has helped a number of clients um, wean off uh, benzodiazepines, and that's because it's a potent NMDA antagonist, um, and it can also promote glycinergic transmission. And so, like, we can stack, like, agmatine, in fact, I think I did a I did a val a um on my YouTube video I did a I did a Valium recovery stack which was um, agmatine, lemon balm, taurine, and GABA itself, and that concoction there theoretically, based upon all the pathways, should do a pretty damn good job at helping someone get off those medications. Awesome. We'll link to that in the description as well, so that people can click straight through to it. Um, so let's talk about your sleep stack like if you have a sleep stack what is it and what do you do outside of just supplementation to ensure that you can get a good night's sleep well to be honest my um my sleep stack at the moment is pretty simple um it actually i don't i only use one compound for sleep and that's i'll load up again on taurine before bed um and that's because by the time it by the time it gets to like 10 30 at night and i've got all the red lights on in my house and i've got the blue blockers on and I've got, um, you know, like calming music and things like that. And I've like trained my ass off during the day. Like by the time it hits like 10 o'clock, 1030 and I've been working for like 13 hours, like I am so ready for bed. Um, so my sleep stack, it used to be more sophisticated and I used to be way more experimental and way like I just used to trial different things all the time. Um, but really my like, the one thing that I say is like good quality sleep begins the moment you wake up. And the reason I say that is because you want to be getting outside, like in the sun, exposing your body to the sun um, because that's really going to reinforce melatonin signaling that evening. Um, and then I also try and aim for 15 to 20,000 steps per day. Cause that's like generally a good practice. What I've found for like keeping cortisol, you know, low and, um, things like that. But really, there's also some sleep optimization foods that I'll gravitate towards. And that will be um, sometimes some pistachios because pistachios are rich. Well, one of the one of the nuts that are known to um, massively increase blood levels of melatonin. Um, in addition to pineapple, pineapple is a good evening snack. And then also kiwi fruit. Uh, kiwi fruit has been shown to improve sleep quality um, in healthy volunteers as well. And with just touching on melatonin there, and I know you've talked about some of the downstream accidents of melatonin being produced. If someone isn't doing any of those things and they're perhaps struggling to sleep, would you ever suggest someone taking directly taking melatonin? Um, yes. I mean, I, I think melatonin can be used 
long-term sustainably as long as they're using less than one milligram every night. I think less than one milligram is better as a sustainable ongoing treatment. Um, if somebody's suffering from a really bad case of the flu or they have severe infection or they have massive amounts of inflammation or some sort of sickness or disease, you know, you can throw, you can dose up to 10, 20, 30, 50 milligrams of melatonin without causing, it's not toxic. Um, it won't cause massive side effects and that can have a really potent immunomodulatory effect. Um, but just in my case, what I found with melatonin is even exogenous use of melatonin, I will still wake up feeling pretty average like the following day. Like I don't feel like I have as much spring in my step the following day. So that's why if I ever do use it, it's 300 micrograms, which is 0.3 milligrams. And it's 0.3 milligrams of a six-hour extended release form. So it's like a really, it's like microdosing really low dose of melatonin um, and it's trickling into your system, not just like immediately before bed. Yeah, I don't think, like with those dosages, I don't think I've ever seen, not here anyway, a supplement, they start at like 3, 6, 10, 12, and then I think maybe 15 or something is what I've seen. Like they're, they immediately go in at what sounds like a sledgehammer to get the same result. Yeah. I think um, uh, life extension, they should... Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure they still manufacture 300 microgram capsules of melatonin. Okay. Uh, and just one more thing I wanted to ask you was you mentioned taurine a lot and that you're using taurine. And I guess for some people, they'll be most familiar with this in, I'm sure it's in energy drinks. So mm. they might be wondering why, if you're going to bed, would you take something that's found in an energy drink? Well, lo and behold, taurine is not a stimulant. Um, for those wondering, it's it's uh it, it's found in energy drinks because, well, there's actually two reasons why I think Red Bull decided to put taurine into their energy drink. Um, the first reason is because they probably knew that too much caffeine can cause anxiety or jitters and and um, nervousness. And taurine has the opposite effect. It can calm the body, reduce panic, reduce um, irritability. And that's why it's so easy to combine. That's why it's so easy to drink Red Bull without feeling too wired because the, the taurine dampens the excitatory, dampens what I mentioned before, blocking the glutamate signaling um, or at least suppressing that and increasing GABA tone. And <clears throat> the reason why I like taurine is because not only will it help with you know um, neurotransmission, highly neuroprotective, blocking the damaging effects of fluoride exposure, you know, it can block that. It can also assist with male hormonal optimization, which is what I'm very well known for, naturally optimizing testosterone. Um, and that taurine can saturate in the testes and act as a you know very potent antioxidant in the testes as well. Amazing. Thank yeah. you so much. Like. There's so much information there for people to digest. And I can't thank you enough for coming on. Uh, where can people find out more about you or get in contact with you? Yeah, so if they head over to my YouTube channel, that's Boost Your Biology on YouTube. Check that out. And also, if you want to listen to my podcast, that's also Boost Your Biology. They can check out those two platforms. And before you do, 
sit down, make sure you're comfortable and settle in. Because once you've watched one video, I guarantee you're going to watch the next one and the next one, the next one. Yeah. Just, and rewatch them. I'll go back and visit some of your old ones and go back through them. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on the podcast and I'd love to do it again sometime. Yeah, no worries, Mark. I uh, really enjoyed the chat and you'd be great fun. Cool. Thank you.